Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Pastor, where we look at movies, music, comics, and more from the perspective of faith. Well, hello everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us for another episode of Pop Culture Pastor. Today we're going to be talking about uh, Encanto because, you know, this is obviously everybody's talking about it. This wasn't something that was cool like four or five months ago, and I'm just now getting to it because <laughs> it took me too long to start this podcast. Uh, well, it's it's still somewhat relevant, I think. And so uh, I have a guest today who has uh, a lot of thoughts on this movie and a lot of ways that it's connected with her. And so Kaylee Beckstrom is joining us today. Uh, she's a member of, of the church where I minister and a very thoughtful person. So really glad to have you today, Kaylee. Uh, why don't you tell us a little just your history with the church? I mean, we don't need to go into all of the trauma right off the bat. <laughs> that'll, that'll probably come up eventually. I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. Uh, yeah, so I grew up in the church. Um, I grew up between a couple of different churches, all of which I would say were pretty, um, very conservative, pretty controlling. Um, I've definitely had some negative experiences with the church, um, but through all of that, um, I've really seen the ways that church can also be really life-giving and helpful. And so one of the kind of constant pulls in my life is is towards that community, um, that community that actually looks like Christ, that actually supports people, um, looking towards what the church can be. And I actually feel like we've kind of found that in the, the community that we're building here is really, really lovely. Um, and so, yeah, just... Church is very integrally tied to Christianity for me. Um, that community aspect of it is really important. So uh, one of the reasons I connect with this movie is because of all the the mm -hmm. very community uh, group orientation of it versus kind of following one person's story um, is also kind of how I connect to religion is more around yeah. community and that group Community dynamic. and family, right? Absolutely. That's, that's what the movie's about. Uh, yeah, and as we're going to see, like uh, the central metaphor is, you know, the... It's about the movie's about a house. The church is considered a the, the house of God or, or a building, in a sense. So yeah, we'll get into that in a second. But uh, just generally, like, what have been some of your pop culture interests? Some of the first things that you were into? I don't know. So um, I always kind of laugh like pop culture is an interesting way to look at it because I feel like all the things I like are not popular. <laughs> um, <Okay>. I <laughs> I kind of fall, pop is relative. I kind of fall like none of my friends are ever really uh, interested in the same pop culture stuff I am. Uh, I had a kid really young and so my friends who have kids the same age the pop culture stuff they relate to I was really too young for and then most of my friends who are my age they're really into current pop culture which I am too busy to pay attention to because I have a kid so um, I, uh, I am really into um, certain types of music though a lot of TV, podcasts, books, stuff like that pretty much you know across the gamut um, but I find myself engaging with a lot of kids' movies and mm -hmm. kids-centered pop culture at this life, uh, at this point in my life, just because that is what we have time to watch is whatever my kid can watch. Right, so. and, and that's what we're doing today. We're like, yeah, yeah, lots of Disney, Disney Plus movie uh, stuff, is, you know. Surprisingly, yeah, connects with adults in a lot of ways, as many of those often do. And yeah, you have you have a young kid just like I do. Uh, actually, I think by the time this podcast releases, you will have a second kid. 
Yeah, I should. Because you're eight months, nine months pregnant. Yeah, pretty much nine months pregnant right now. Could be any time. So, you know, by the time this comes out, I should have multiple kids. Hopefully the second one won't have any opinions about what we're watching on TV yet, but you never know. But you're going to start them off right with good quality stuff like Encanto. So uh, I assume most people have have seen Encanto by now. It's the movie that's on Disney+. Plus. Basically, it's a story of the the Madrigal family. Uh, It's set in, in South America. And they, uh, you know, this family that's endured some trauma, but they have this magical house. Uh, the, the grandmother, Abuela, was given this miracle. And so there's this magic house that kind of has its own personality. And then all the members of the family, except for one, have uh, basically superpowers, right? And they use those abilities and powers and, and the house itself to, to benefit their community until uh, the house starts to fall apart. And it's up to um, one one member of the house, the one who has uh, no no powers, Mirabelle, to kind of figure out what's going wrong and and sort it out. Anything else you know that cover all the basics? You think in terms of the movie? I mean, that's pretty much the movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's also a musical, right? So we've got songs by Lin Manuel Miranda, uh, creator of Hamilton, and lots of other great stuff. And so that's one of the reasons that it, it stuck around so much and uh, because of these very catchy songs. We are going to talk about Bruno eventually, don't worry. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, everybody loves Lin-Manuel. But the reason we're talking about Encanto today is that it is a story of deconstruction. Right? It's about a house that's falling apart. And if you pay attention to much in the Christian world these days, Deconstruction is a word that gets thrown around a lot in, in a lot of different ways. There are some people who kind of have a problem with it or describe it in, in weird ways. Uh, I think the way that I heard it described by one preacher was that it's a sexy new trend. Does that sound sound about right to you, Kaylee? Uh it sounds about right about how people uh, describe it, for sure. <laughs> people have a lot of opinions about deconstruction. Uh, yeah, I guess it's, you know, really trendy to take your beliefs seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, girl, you want to be judged by your faith community for questioning everything you believe? Mm, Super sexy. You want to have right? some some talks about your actual beliefs about the Bible and the church? Like, that that gets everybody going. Mm-hmm. It's a oh, really yeah. sexy trend. Oh, yeah, trend. exactly. You would only do that because it's it's cool, not because you actually are looking for truth or anything like that. You know, one of the, as, as we were talking about this, and again, the idea of uh, a house as a metaphor is as something that's being deconstructed. Um, you had some really good insight about, you know, what deconstruction is and uh, what it's not. Yeah, so I think that um, a lot of church leaders are worried that deconstruction is actually demolition, that people are trying to just demolish their beliefs. They just want to take them down, maybe because they never took them seriously to begin with, or because they don't care about the church, or they just want an excuse to sin. And so they think that deconstruction means that people are just taking a sledgehammer to everything the church has built or given them or everything that Jesus taught. And that's really not what deconstruction is. So we've kind of stolen the term deconstruction um, from uh, literary movements who stole it from actual construction terminology. Uh, And the reality is that demolition and deconstruction are two very different things. So um, I actually do a lot of DIY, you know, home repairs, remodeling, things like that uh, on my own. I know we need to have you come over, but you're about to have a baby. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, it's not a good time. Um, (laughs) But demolition and deconstruction are two very different things when you're talking about an actual house, right? So demolition says, I just want to tear down everything that's here so I can build from scratch. Um, Demolition is pretty easy and it's pretty fun and Mm -hmm. it's actually not that expensive or painful. So if all you want to do is uh, demolish something, if you just want to take out everything that's there, you can take a sledgehammer to things without really any skill or thought. Um, You can, you know, bring in a wrecking ball to a giant building. You can do um, controlled explosions. You know, those things are actually relatively not that expensive and don't take that much skill. Deconstruction, however, it's actually a process of basically following the construction process in reverse. What deconstruction does is you take out pieces of a house in a very organized manner for the purpose of evaluating each one once it's out of its context to determine if it's useful for what you're rebuilding or for another purpose. And so the thing about deconstruction is that you kind of need someone who's an expert in a lot of areas and you you have to go in a certain order. You have to be careful and thoughtful. And so, you know, you're going to start deconstruction by taking out finished materials. You're going to take off faucets and light fixtures and hardware. And then you need someone who knows about those faucets and light fixtures and hardware to decide out of context, are these helpful? Could we use them in what we're going to build in this place? Or could we use them something uh, somewhere else? Um, and the process of removing those things is, you know, relatively quick. A lot of people can do that. But then you look at taking out some more, um, some more important materials, some more difficult mm-hmm. materials. Uh, I worked on a project where we were removing uh, some hand glazed tile from a house that was built in the 50s. And here's the thing, taking out tile normally, really fun. I mean, you just pretty much, you know, take Smash a sledgehammer to it. Yeah, it's yep. great. Um, but if you want to take that out for the purposes of reuse, you have to actually cut through the grout lines individually. You're trying to dissolve the thin set. You're pulling it out. It's tough to do that with thick gloves on. And so a lot of times you're doing it with your bare hands uh, and you get kind of cut up and hurt in the process. And as you're taking it out you know pieces do break and fall apart um but you're hoping for those pieces that stay together and then you have to look at how much do i have left and how helpful is this and what context can i use it in and you may do all of that work and not be able to use it at all you may do all of that work and end up with five or six tiles that are going to be a really beautiful part of a project that's going to be totally different or you might salvage a ton of really valuable irreplaceable materials and so The process of deconstruction, you know, first we're taking out materials that are pretty easy, that are finishes. Then we're taking out things that are more essential to the structure, uh, tiles, windows, cabinetry, flooring materials, things like that. Then there's a process with deconstruction where you have to carefully remove things that you know you can't use to get to the really expensive stuff that you might be able to reuse. So for instance, uh, drywall. There's really no point in trying to salvage drywall from a 70-year-old house. It's never going to happen. But you have to be careful how you remove that drywall if you might want to reuse the wood that's behind it, that's actually, you know, uh, uh, creating the actual structure of the house. A lot of times we're looking at extinct wood species. We're looking at things that can be reused and are really valuable. But to get to that, it is time consuming and it is painful and you have to dig through a lot of crap. And yeah, it's, uh, all, it's all connected. Yeah. Right, in the house. Most and things so are not just separate. Deconstruction so ends up one. taking a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a long process and it can be painful and you don't always know what you're going to get in the end because you might hire some experts and go through that process and really not end up with a lot of usable materials. Um, And 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 it's definitely not going to be the same, right? Like you you can't just deconstruct one thing and build it somewhere else, right? Like you can actually take an entire house apart 
and then move it somewhere else. You really have to look at every piece and decide how can we reuse this and is it worth reusing? And I think that's what the spiritual process of deconstruction is as well. It's not that we're taking a sledgehammer to everything that we've been taught without appreciation. We're actually appreciating it more by carefully removing pieces from our theology and from our experience and from our belief system and then evaluating those often with help from people who know more than we do or who have more experience and deciding is this useful and the thing is that before you can use any of it you have to remove a lot of pieces and so there is a point at which deconstruction looks scary where all you have is this unusable drywall and this stack of you know stuff on the ground and I can see how from a spiritual perspective or as a church leader that seems really scary like they're taking apart all the things I gave them and all the things I taught them but when you go through deconstruction and then you start with a more solid foundation next time and you start with some new materials and these old materials that you're actually showing appreciation for and using in a way you couldn't use before and making sure everything you have is the best it can be and the highest quality just like the difference between you know a cookie cutter uh, cul-de-sac house that's built mm. in the development without your you know perspective versus a home that's been you know lived in and remodeled over time by a family you get a lot more character and you get this depth and you get this quality from something that's been deconstructed and reconstructed and so when I hear church leaders talking about deconstruction as if it's you know just so easy and it's just people not appreciating what they've been given like it really couldn't be more the opposite it's not why walking away from the entire system, right? When you're deconstructing a house, you're not saying, I want to be homeless. I'm walking away from the idea <laughs> right. of housing. Yeah, like I, I still would like a house. Yeah, but it's it's this process of saying, I really want to be thoughtful and keep the parts that are useful or maybe use them in a new way and mm-hmm. get rid of the parts that are not serving us anymore. Um, and so I guess that's one of my big frustrations when people talk about deconstruction is, is just treating it like it's fast or it's not painful um, because it is, I think, that deconstruction, you know, on a house and spiritually, uh, it's it's slow and it's hard and it's painful. Um, and I think that actually there's a lot of ways that this movie is a really good metaphor for that. Yeah. And, you know, it's, you know, thinking about it from the church perspective, you know, this sense of, well, we spent all this time building this, you know, like it goes back decades or centuries, depending on how you're thinking about the church, you know, a, a specific congregation or a, a movement. And, and it just, I know there's some people that feel like, oh, well, you're disrespecting the people that that built this house, but, you know, to take it back to the building and actual house metaphor, well, it's, you know, yeah, if you built something 100 years ago, it's not going to just always work exactly the same. To restore it uh, sometimes means taking out some things that aren't working anymore, and you're not doing that because you hate what they did. You're just seeing this is, that was good for then, but it's not good for now, and I think some people struggle with, you know, being able to admit that or that feels like it's judging what came before but like you said if it's it's really come from a, a place of uh, commitment and and love and and seeking truth it, it is done with respect but it may not always feel that way I think that's maybe part of the reason for the resistance that that we run into sometimes as, as we question certain beliefs or say is is this actually usable is this actually was it even you know really good build, building material? In the first place, you know, there might be some times where we can say, like, yeah, this this was not built well, and this just needs to be torn down. And like you said, it's it's hard to go through that. It, it takes a lot of work, and it, it hurts you personally to do this, right? Nobody that's really going through this process is, like, having fun with it. You feel 
cut off from some of the people that you are close to if if they're not making the same shifts that you are and so it's it's hard and you know you're trying to do this as you're living in or i'm going to you know, read something a little bit later but the idea of like remodeling a house while you live in it is you know that's really difficult you know we got our bathroom redone last year and you know we had other bathrooms but just the the pressure and the the difficulties that makes of not being able to use this one space in your house because it's being rebuilt, you know, and so that's kind of what we're trying to do when we are committed to still being in church. And you know, as as a pastor, that's kind of part of the deal. I don't, I, don't, I can't just like, hey, I'm going to take you know a few months to go figure out what I believe, and then I'll come back and I'll teach and preach. No, you got to keep preaching while you're not sure what you believe. Sometimes, right? There's there's a lot of ministers are actually going through that right now. And so it's, yeah, it's like living in a house that you're actively remodeling and, and maybe, you know, taking some things apart. So I understand why people would resist that because it's not fun, right? It, it, it is easier to just stick with what you've already got. It's actually but. more like living in a duplex where you're only remodeling your side of the duplex because your neighbor can hear all the stuff you're doing and yeah. it's kind of loud and uncomfortable for them too. Uh, and, you know, if you were both remodeling at the same time, you could probably save a lot of money and efficiency on working on things together. Um, but I can see how maybe for other church members who are living on the other side of that house, it's pretty uncomfortable to see what their neighbors are doing. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean that what their neighbors are doing isn't worthwhile and increasing, you know, the values of everybody's homes. And I think that people who go through deconstruction, like we can increase the value of the church overall because of the work that we've done. Um, but also I do think it's important to, to have grace for people who are watching others go through that change. And it feels really hard and uncomfortable for them as well. I, I can see established church leaders um, who are really struggling with feeling like they're going to lose members over deconstruction, you know, when they're not going through that same process. Um, um, I would like to see that change. It, it doesn't make the way that they that they talk about or treat people who are going through that process fair. Uh, but I do think, you know, when someone in your neighborhood is kind of tearing their house apart, everyone feels a little uncomfortable about it until it's done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, that that happens in the church too. Yeah. And, or if it's like if people see it and they're not sure about it, like, well, just get it over with, right? Like wrap it up quickly. You know, it's okay if you ask some questions. But you better come up with answers pretty quick. And and honestly, we'd like if they were still pretty much the same answer that we gave. But yeah, you've all seen, you know, neighbors that have projects that just, when are they going to be done with this? Because I'm tired of the eyesore. I didn't know you lived in my neighborhood. <laughs> I drive by quite a bit. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, the idea of like sharing that space. If you had like a roommate who didn't want to be remodeling and you were remodeling, right? Like that's... Yeah, it is community as we're talking about. And so it's not just me, you know, what I personally believe. Um, it's always connected to others. And that's why it's difficult and what can make it hard and sometimes why there's resistance to it. But as we mentioned, the overall, overall purpose of deconstruction is not just to tear things down, but maybe to expose what's not working, right? To see the things that are in need of repair that sometimes we don't want to admit that. Um, and so it's, it's bringing these hidden things to light. And I think going back to Encanto, that's kind of what is happening through throughout the movie, right? That as as the house itself is starting to show cracks and show that things are not as good as they should be, Mirabelle kind of goes on this journey talking with her her different family members and realizing that all of them are are feeling like something's not right either, 
and the way that they are being used or the way that people expect certain things from them, that it creates a lot of, well, pressure, as we're going to talk about with one of the, the key songs. And so uh, we're going to look at just a few of the characters. There's a lot of characters in this movie. I'm, I'm, could you do the whole like family tree real quick? Do you, I'm just Not by name, that's no. for sure. <laughs> so just, you can go listen to the first song. If you brought uh, our actual five-year-olds here, they probably could do it better yes, than we that can. Yes, that is true. Uh, so we're really just going to focus on a few of the characters. Uh, but one of the ways we're going to, the way we're going to approach that is talking about the Enneagram. Uh, so this is talk about things that, you know, most people are done talking about. <laughs> people were all about the Enneagram years ago for the most part, but it's still a very useful tool. Uh, it's something I've, I've studied a lot about and I know you have as well, Kaylee. Uh, but just a quick explanation if you're like the last person who doesn't know what the Enneagram is. This is um, a personality system uh, that has, it's more of a spiritual focus. Uh, there are nine types to it. And in some ways it's built around uh, like the deadly sins or the passions. Uh, but it's, it's a very dynamic system because it's not just saying this is how you are all the time. It's about these are your motivations and you can act in a way that's healthy in your type and your number and you can act in a way that's unhealthy you can pick up things from other numbers you can be that you're connected to, but it always goes back to kind of that that root motivation. Uh, any, any other quick Enneagram stuff that, again, we could do a whole series about Enneagram, and I don't want to go too far into that. I mean, again, I think it's just important to remember, like, it's it's really, it's about your motivation. It's about what the thing that you wrestle with. And one of the things I like about the Enneagram is that really it's nine types but all nine types wrestle with three things. Um, and so it's kind of three sections of how you handle wrestling with those. And I think um, we see that in, uh, in Encanto, that several of the characters are actually wrestling with the same main motivation um, or main uh, emotion, but the way that they individually translate that and wrestle with it is different. And that's one of the things I like about the Enneagram is that you see multiple types actually kind of focused on the same uh, core emotion, but that translates different ways into different types. And I think we kind of see that in the movie as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're all dealing with this same problem in a sense, but because of how they you know view the world, it, it shapes how they feel about it. So the first one we're going to talk about is Louisa. Really, we're talking about the three sisters of Louisa, Isabella, and, and Mirabelle, our kind of main character. And so uh, we're actually going to hear a little bit of Louisa's songs. It's called Surface Pressure. So her uh, superpower is that she is just super strong. All the time, people are asking her to carry things and move things, right? The donkeys got out again, so she, she's the one that needs to go track them down. She has to move buildings around, all these kind of things. And she's actually the first person that Mirabelle goes to really talk to. And, you know, as you hear in this song, she feels a lot of pressure. All right, so that was the song Surface Pressure. This is Louisa's song where she's explaining how she feels, what, what uh, is going wrong kind of in her life. And so what you hear in that is that 
everybody expects so much from her that it, it's just too much. Like it's literally too much to carry, right? I mean, that's, it's a kid's movie. So the metaphors are, are pretty simple, but like it's, it works, right? Like I, I think most people, this is one of the main songs that really caught on. Like so many people hear this song, like, yeah, I, I get that. I, I just feel like I am under so much pressure. And so to go to the Enneagram, this I think is most clearly what would be called a, a type two, uh, often labeled the helper which you hear even that, right? She has to help everybody. It's, it's her job. You know, the line that we heard in that is, I'm pretty sure I'm worthless if I can't be of service. Right? That is very much a two way of, of looking at things, right? That, that their sense of worth comes in how much they can be of service, be a help to other people. And in fact, the, the really negative side of that is pride, that you eventually can get to the point where you feel, well, nobody can get by without me. I'm just so important. But then they start to resent the way that everybody <laughs> expects them to help because that's what they always do. And then they feel annoyed that nobody is helping them, even though they would never, ever ask for help. And uh, so thinking about this in the church, churches kind of run on twos, right? Like the churches really like twos because, uh, you know, you're always looking, you know, as a pastor, you're always looking for volunteers. Like, who can teach this class? Who can take care of, uh, you know, this this ministry? Who can cook these meals, right? The twos are the first people that are going to be like, oh, well, I can help, um, even if they really can't, even if they don't actually have time. And so they're going to help, and sometimes they may complain about it, uh, at least, you know, behind the scenes, but they're still going to help. Until eventually, sometimes they start to feel too much pressure, like we heard in the song, and, and they do burn out. So I where have you seen how churches can overuse these helper-type people? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in, in any organization, we need people to work, right? And what's difficult is that um, ideally, you're looking at the jobs and, and who needs a job? Who's well-suited for this? But often what happens instead is you're going to rely on the people who are already working. I mean, if I know this mm-hmm. person did a great job with the last project I gave them, it's really tempting to just give them another project. And twos, they kind of never say no and they want to volunteer mm-hmm. for everything. And then not only do they get overused and burned out, I feel like another thing we see with twos is that they struggle then to connect on other aspects, things outside of helping people. And so one of the things I think we kind of see with Luisa in the movie is that no one really knows her. Like she's mm. not really connecting other aspects of their relationship. It's never Luisa. Let's sit down and chat about this. Like it's always like Luisa grab the piano. Like right. I think you see that with two. Sometimes they get so in the habit of they're just helping. They're just working. They're just doing these tangible things where an unhealthy two can end up struggling to connect in other aspects of their relationship too. And that's definitely something I've experienced with, uh, with some of the twos in my own life is that they get to that point where they're, they're overwhelmed. They've committed to so much stuff that they can't really handle all of it, but that's the only part of the relationship where they feel valued. It's the only part Mm -hmm. of the relationship they're investing in. And so sometimes like, I don't need you to help right now. I just want you to like sit down and have a conversation and that can be really difficult. And I think it can be like that in churches too, where twos get really, um, overused and they're helping so much, um, that maybe other people aren't getting opportunities to serve or aren't being challenged to serve. And also then those twos, they're struggling to connect with people in other ways. Um, Mm -hmm. and so they end up not making the connections that they need to make sometimes. Um, and I think that can be, 
can really be a challenge. Um, and there's definitely situations where that can be kind of just abused and taken advantage of because someone knows they're going to show up and they just need somebody to show up. Yeah, right. I mean, the 80-20 rule is what always get talked about, right? 20% of people do 80% of the work. And those 20% are twos and threes. Yeah. (laughs) And maybe some sixes. We'll get to them in a second. So yeah, this, a couple of things you mentioned there, like this, almost a sense of identity, right? And that's, again, something you hear in the song. Uh, She sings later, who am I if I can't carry it all, right? Like if I can't do these things, I don't know who I am, right? So their, their, you know, very identity is caught up in all the things that they can do. And so just tell them like, I don't need you to do anything. I just want to be with you. You can just be. It's kind of hard. And, you know, I'm married to a two, so I could say a lot about the dynamics of, of how they operate. But, you know, a, a thing that I try and say to my wife a lot is, like, you, you matter to me. You have worth not for anything that you do just because of who you are. And that's, that's just hard for them to believe, right? Like there's a message that every type needs to hear and it's just so hard for them to accept. And I think for twos, that's it. And, and so in the movie, it's Louisa trying to wrestle with that of, yeah, who am I and what is mine to do? That's another good question for a two is, is this actually mine? Is this my task? And as you mentioned, and what often happens in churches is that so much gets put on, put on them or that they expect to do too much or others expect a lot of them, right? So there are times in the movie where it's like, why do you need Louisa to do that? Just go find your own stupid donkeys. Yeah, there's definitely a point where uh, people have like ridden or walked their donkeys all the way to the house and then Louisa's putting them up. And it's like, yeah, if you could get your donkey from the village to the house, I'm pretty sure you could also get it into the pen. Like Louisa doesn't need to be doing this job. Yeah, but just the assumption like, well, you know, this this is what she does, right? So we'll just have her do it instead of actually thinking about their feelings and what they may want to do, but it's hard for twos to, to speak up. And so, yeah, in, in churches, and, you know, it's especially important for me as, as a church leader to recognize and acknowledge, okay, what, what do people actually feel like they should be doing? Are we asking too much of certain people? Are there other people that could step up? If you're not a two, maybe something to think about. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's just easy to fall into this rhythm and not see the pressure that certain people feel like they're under. So speaking of pressure, we're going to talk about another sister, another part of the family. This is Mirabelle's other sister, Isabella. So her power is that she can uh, just make flowers appear wherever. She can make things grow. And kind of along with that, this idea of, you know, she just creates beauty everywhere. She just seems flawless, right? She's beautiful. Everyone loves her. It doesn't seem like there's anything that she can do wrong ever. And so, of course, feeling the pressure to be like that is nobody would ever struggle with uh, feeling that way. Uh, and so this is what comes up in her song, What Else Can I Do? So let's hear a little bit of, of that. I make perfect practice poses So much hugs behind my smile What could I do if I just grew what I was feeling in the moment? You know where you're going What could I do if I just knew it didn't need to be perfect It just needed to be So as you heard in that song, she's dealing with this idea that you know, it just trying to be perfect all the time is it's just too much. And actually, uh, there's so much more, right? Um, I make perfect practice poses so much hides behind my smile. Right? So this idea that she has to present herself a certain way all the time, and maybe sometimes she doesn't want to be like that. 
right? The the scene in the movie is her like she accidentally makes like a cactus or something spiky, something that's not pretty, so to speak, and like finding some freedom and joy in that. And so to go to the Enneagram, this is most like a, a type one, sometimes called the reformer or the perfectionist. And so it is the mindset of I have to do things right. Now you can define right in lots of different ways, but whatever right is, that's what they have to be. And and so, you know, these are people that if you have them in their life, they're very on task. If you ask them to do something, it gets done. They often think about things that need to be done even before you do. So again, they're they're great people to have around, but they can also be well, kind of perfectionists. And so they expect a lot out of you. And if you're doing something wrong, they will probably tell you. Right? They're going to reload the dishwasher or something like that because you didn't do it right, as if there's only one right way to do it, and only they know. And so the the emotion that comes with that, the the passion, is anger or really resentment, right? Because they just constantly feel this frustration that things in the world are not right. And a lot of it is actually directed at themselves. They know they are not perfect, and so they're frustrated with themselves, and they're kind of always lashing out from that place at other people who are imperfect. And so, again, that's, that's kind of her journey, right? And the song is saying, I don't want to be perfect all the time. Uh, but, so again, to take it to the church, do you see any ways that the church expects perfection out of people and ways that that sometimes can go wrong? Um, like all the ways, like the existence mm-hmm. of church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's that one. Be perfect for your heavenly father is perfect. That's right. And you know, it's, that it's in there. It's in the Bible. Just do it. Um, yeah, I mean, the church expects so much from from church leaders, from the people around them, from members across the board. You know, we we really don't want to see people's flaws. And when we do, uh, it's it's uncomfortable and a lot of times the church doesn't know what to do with it um and even the ways that people are like sort of sanctioned to admit their flaws in church are so specific Mm. like you need to admit it in this way whether at your church that's like going forward or writing a letter and really please don't admit it until you fixed it um correct it first then tell us about it we don't want to know there's anything imperfect currently um and you know at least in the the more fundamentalist leaning evangelical uh, world that I was raised in, I feel like this came down on women, especially uh, mm-hmm. men, especially younger men and boys had a lot more room to make mistakes and to well, experiment. Boys will be boys. I don't know if you had heard that. Yeah. We, yeah. We of just, course. There's, will. there's nothing we can do for them. Um, but you know, women in the church, I think are expected to be a very certain way and to walk this very fine line between being very pious and taking their faith very seriously and being these good examples, but then also not overstepping and not saying anything where they shouldn't say it and not, you know, being judgmental or usurping the men in their lives, but then also, you know, um, leading the men in their lives in the right direction and not doing anything that could tempt them. Like there's don't be a stumbling block, which is literally objectifying people. It's, it's a very specific line we're asked to walk. Um, and, I think the church has a really hard time with that and expecting things, not even necessarily to be perfect, but to look perfect, mm. which yeah, I think we, yeah, we see that in the movie a lot too. Like it's not actually that like adding flowers everywhere makes things perfect, but they look perfect. She's mm-hmm. just so nice to be around. And often it feels like that's the situation in the church is not even that we actually expect people to be perfect, but we want them to look perfect. Right. Right. Like, 
yeah, you might, you know, drink on the weekends, but don't talk about it at church. Mm-hmm. And like, you might cuss at work, but not at church. Like, yeah. that's not okay. We mm-hmm. want it to look a certain way. And I just don't think that means anything. Whitewashed tombs and all that. I mm-hmm. read that in mm-hmm. a book somewhere. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but again, like, we really see that in the movie. Like, everything looks perfect. And Abuela is so happy that she makes everything look perfect. But if you really look at it, it's like, what is her gift really doing? Mm. Um, it doesn't actually help people like, you know, Louise says or their mom who can heal people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, but her, she's somehow almost the most valued member of the family in a lot of ways. Um, well, it's, you can put her on a pedestal in a way. Yeah. Right? And that's even, you know, part of the plot of the movie is that they're trying basically to marry her off to this other guy who's super handsome. but Which she doesn't want to do, right. but because it's what everyone else wants her to do, it feels like the right choice, right. so it's she right just thing. has to right. do I'm it. I'm going to do the right thing for my family and and not what I want. It's so. exhausting. Like You feel exhausted for her just watching the movie, even though she's kind of a jerk sometimes. She is, a little bit. But again, like to go to the Enneagram, that is, is just kind of part of it. You're so frustrated at yourself for not being as perfect as, as you feel like you should be that that affects the way you look at everybody else, right? They have this very harsh inner critic, and so they can come across as very critical towards others, but they're doing that to themselves too, and, but you don't see that. And, you know, you mentioned nobody really knows Louisa. I think it's kind of the same uh, for Isabella, right? Like, you don't really get to know her until this song. Like, she just seems very cold and distant because, you know, that's when you have to be perfect. You can't really get, you can't be vulnerable, you can't be close to somebody because then they'll, they'll see the flaws pretty quick. And so, again, the, is, are there real relationships in the church? Or do we have that kind of closeness and vulnerability? Or are we just trying to seem like we've got it all together? And so we keep that, that distance to, to enable that. You know, she sings later on in the song, I'm, I'm sick of pretty, I want something true. Right, so it's kind of the question of well, which do we want, right? If we're deconstructing, do we rather would we rather have things that look pretty, or would we rather have things that are true? And you know, to get to the truth, it might be a little ugly for a minute. You have to ask some hard questions, and I think that's maybe why people resist it. But the end outcome is it's not just something pretty and superficial that that we're trying to get to something real and and actually true in our relationships. And in our in our community as as a whole, right? But also like um, pretty without truth, it it will always end poorly. So if you put a brand new cast iron bathtub over a floor joist that's not meant to support it, and then you fill it up with water, it will fall through into your basement. And it might have looked really nice on Instagram, but it's not going to look nice when your basement is flooded and your bathroom is destroyed. I mean, uh, it's frustrating sometimes to see these like people are like, oh, I'm turning my attic into a guest bedroom. And it's like, no, that's not what those were meant to support. And so sometimes the actual like structures of the church, the foundation we're building on, is not enough to hold up the pretty thing we're trying to build, the the image we're trying to build. And so with deconstruction, we're trying to say, wait, what if we take out this part that looks nice and we fix what's underneath it? And then we might still be able to use the part that looks nice. There might be value there. Um, And that's the thing. I don't think that in the movie, like we're not expecting Isabella to stop growing flowers. It's just that what's underneath that needs to be fixed first before the other thing can really be valuable. And in the church, I think we look past that so often where we're like, if it doesn't look good, the whole time it's not worth doing and like sometimes you need to rip out the thing that looks good to fix what's underneath it yeah because it's rotten underneath right you don't always see the rot because it's behind a wall or a, a nice painting 
And so, yeah, it's, it's what, what, how can we go deeper in this and let people be real and, you know, they're find beauty in different ways, right? All the, the cacti and other things that she makes later on are also pretty. They're just not pretty in the way that some people would expect. So can we be open to new forms of beauty and, and other ways of having gifts and being beautiful? And so that leads to uh, the last character we're going to talk about in this little section is Mirabelle herself, right? Again, the, the main character, the only member of the family who doesn't have any any powers. And that's kind of her struggle through the whole thing, even as the movie's starting, right? Like, oh, oh yeah, you're the one who didn't get a gift. Um, and just feeling that she's doesn't fit in her family as well. That's, that's We're not going to listen to the song, but she has one early on where she's kind of singing about, you know, I can't do all these these other things. Now, if we're going to the Enneagram, it's not as obvious what her type would be. Hard disagree. Yes, we're going to disagree, and we're both going <laughs> to type her as ourselves. Which we maybe... all want to be Mirabelle. <laughs> she does have cool glasses. Uh, so I am a nine, and I see some nineness in her. Uh, the nine is sometimes called the peacemaker, and a lot of times nines feel like we don't have anything to offer, and so that's that's where I resonate with Mirabelle. Right, that she doesn't have a gift like her sisters or her mom does. And so, you know, what can I do, right? I can't do all these other things. And to think about how the church treats those who, quote unquote, don't have gifts, right? Don't have the flashy gifts. They're not obviously perfect and, and they're not so quick to help and they can't speak or, uh, or teach or these sort of things. There, We always have people in our churches that it's like, well, you know, they're just here. They're not going to do anything. And, you know, that's that's okay, I guess. But, you know, you're never going to think of them uh, as a leader or anything, you know, important. They're just, they're just kind of here. And I think churches always have to consider that of, you know, how are we treating those people that don't have very obvious ways that they can contribute? Because a lot of times they actually do, right? And again, with nines, that's our thing is to realize like, no, you have you have things you can do. I have, I do have gifts like podcasting, I guess, is mine, the spiritual gift of podcasting, uh, amongst other things, I suppose. I think uh, I remember reading about that one in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's, it's one of the later books. Uh, but yeah, what, how do we see that there are, are, are people that are vital to the life of the church, just maybe not in the way that we expect, right? That's the whole plot of the movie is that she's the one who saves the family. The one who doesn't have a gift is has kind of the most important gift. And sometimes you know, recognizing what you don't have can you know, help you move past that and, and be able to, to still use gifts in a different way. Okay, so this is where I'm going to disagree, though, okay. because um, her gift is not recognizing what she has. It's recognizing what everyone else has um, under the surface. So I'm a type six, and sixes are uh, afraid of everything. Um <laughs> And, but, but mainly for a lot of sixes, what it really comes down to, it's not that we're afraid of everything. It's that we're, we are acutely aware of all the things that could go wrong. Um, that's, it's not that we're afraid of things that couldn't go wrong. We just know all the things that could, and you guys don't. Um, and no, it, it'll all be fine. That's, that's always the night. No, no, no. Too, but, um, the sixes you know? are, the fear comes from believing that we don't have within ourselves the capability to handle those things, that we're not going to be able to do that ourselves, to move past that ourselves, um, to actually handle whatever comes up. Uh, 
this belief that there's a certain set of skills necessary to handle every problem and we don't have all of those skills. So sixes tend to be very committed to the group. We're very loyal. We love a group dynamic. And sixes tend to be very good at seeing what everyone contributes to the group. And so all anyone else can see is that Luisa is strong is that uh, you know their their cousin um, actually is a really important part of the movie even though she's maybe the the least recognized character um, because she's the one who tells Mirabelle Luisa's eye was twitching and Luisa and then Mirabelle realizes that Luisa knows what's going on and so that's why she starts seeking after her starts this whole process so Mirabel starts the whole movie by talking about how it doesn't matter that she doesn't have a gift because she's part of this family and she knows what everyone else's gifts are and she knows their background and she knows what they struggle with and she's really really committed to keeping the family together and it's because she sees what's going wrong she knows what could go wrong and she knows that they need to handle that as a group she's more committed to the group dynamic than any of them the rest of them are a little obsessed with what their own power is Mirabelle sees none of us could could actually handle this stuff we have to be able to do it together and she is when things start going wrong and everyone else is like just keep it quiet we're gonna fix it she's like no guys we need to fix it right now this is an actual catastrophe are you crazy um so i'm gonna hard argue that she's a six and that the reason she saves things is not because she realizes what's in herself she realizes what's in everybody else and that they need to stop the things that are getting in their way and fix the problem um which is more a six thing than a nine thing Mm -hmm. yes uh, i mean as a nine i'm gonna be very compliant and say yes i'll go i'll go along with that i'll merge with your opinion (laughs) which you knew i would do but yeah i think that no that is such a good point and i did think about the idea of you know she's so committed to the actual family right the the group matters so much that she is not going to just you know, let them focus on themselves and, yeah, sees the flaws. Literally, she sees the house falling apart when nobody else can see it and how, how vital that is to organizations. And you have a lot of sixes in churches as well because, you know, loyalist is, is a term that's sometimes used for that number. And so, of course, sixes are going to be loyal to the church, to the group, but they may not always actually be willing to, you know, deal with things. You know, there's very different ways that that seeing all the flaws can can be expressed sometimes you get the the you know old ladies who will complain about every single thing right because they see all these flaws and can never give a compliment about your sermons or your song leading i feel like this is getting a little personal you for know, you, Chris. you know that's why i started a podcast so i can make my complaints to the internet but you know actually one of the things that i heard about it is that sixes are the people that will always complain but never leave yeah, which is also why I think sixes are easy to take advantage of in the church mm-hmm. because they are really loyal and they're really committed to the group dynamic. And so just whereas twos are easy to take advantage of because they will help with anything and they'll do anything, sixes are easy to take advantage of because they really want everybody there and they really care about everyone. And everyone has to contribute. And they're so loyal, so loyal to the group even when they see the problems and know things are hard. And so I think sixes might complain about a lot but they also put up with a lot um and they they often are bringing complaints because they do see something that's going wrong and it can be frustrating because no one else is taking them seriously and i think we see that in the movie mirabelle from the very beginning is bringing up like no this is going wrong and no one's taking her seriously everyone thinks she's being you know over dramatic or whatever um especially as a group she wants the whole group to acknowledge it and kind of one-on-one they're willing to like whisper whisper tell her that they know what's going on but sixes want the whole group to be on the same page and I think that 
in the church that sixes can be easy to take advantage of because we know what's going on and we know everyone. We're really loyal. So everyone kind of knows that we'll put up with whatever happens. So you can also make a case. For, you mentioned the the cousin Dolores. Uh, you can make a case that she's a nine because she she hears everything that's going yes. on and she doesn't do anything about it. Yes. She kind of hears everyone and understands everyone, but also like doing anything seems really scary. And we also find out later that she's like in love with someone and didn't want to say anything and needs a big push. She feels more like a nine. Yeah, I'll take that. Uh, that's not bad. Yeah, and, and that even kind of transitioning to our next part, like she knows... One of the major secrets of the family, she knows what's really going on, and she never says anything, right? So now is the point where we're going to talk about Bruno. Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to play the song because you know the song. But uh, Bruno, I think, is such an important and interesting character, especially in, in the idea of relating Encanto the, to the church, because he's a prophet. Right? His gift is that he can see the future, which I could go on a long tangent about how Prophecy in Scripture is more than just telling the future, but we'll just say for the sake of this podcast that, yeah, prophecy and seeing where things are going, right? That's his job. And of course, we know Jesus himself says that prophets are not welcome in their hometown or their own home in in Bruno's case, right? Throughout the movie, and, and this is what that song is about, is that it, everybody blames him for everything that goes wrong, right? Because he, he made it happen. Uh, and when really he was just telling uncomfortable truths. He could see what was happening or he was predicting something that was already going to happen. And yet they say it's, it's his fault. And that's very often what happens with prophets, right? People that are willing to, to speak the truth, uh, speak the truth to power. That's a common way that prophets are talked about. Another way that I've, I've heard them described is their job is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Right, so when people are too comfortable in their churches or, or in society, somebody needs to come along and say, hey, there's, there's some things that aren't right here. Right? So prophets play that role, kind of like Mirabelle is doing in the movie. She's a little bit prophetic as well. But then that's not all they do. They don't just complain. You know, sometimes they see that when people are hurting, they need a, a word of encouragement. And prophets do that as well. Right? So you read the Old Testament prophets, and they're just up and down in terms of, you guys are the worst. God is done with you. Or, okay, things have gotten so bad, God is going, God has not forgotten you. Right? Both of those, you kind of have to hold them together, I think, truly to be a prophet, right? If, if someone's just complaining, that's not prophetic. If they're only saying nice things, that's, that's probably a false prophet, too. You know, prophets, they, they live kind of on the edge of the inside, right? You can't be a, a prophet to a group of people unless you're actually part of that group of people, Right? Bruno is part of the family, and that's why you know he's he's trying to say these things and do these things for the family, and that's actually why he leaves. Right, he leaves because he he gets some prophecy about Mirabel and that is you know seeing the house falling apart, and he just goes away. Right, I, I don't think he was really told that you know you have to leave. He kind of senses that himself, but he kind of feels unwelcome. Right, but. Bruno never left, right? That's what Dolores mentions, that I heard him the whole time. And, my, you know, this is another good Enneagram thing. My wife, who's a two, is like, well, why wouldn't she say something? And then me as a nine, it's like, well, if he wants to hide, then she's going to let him hide. Yeah, he made that choice. It's not a nine's job to talk him into something else. Right, right. Uh, If he wants to, then that's great. But that's what he's chosen to do. And so, again, as we think about the church, I don't know, 
how do you how do you see church treating prophetic people, people that you know are telling uncomfortable truths? Churches really like that, right? We love to be uncomfortable. That's actually mm-hmm. something that's really well known about us as a group of people is that mm-hmm. we really welcome new opinions and discomfort. That's why we've changed so much over the years. Uh, mm-hmm. No, not big on people who uh, are speaking truth to power in particular or feel like bearers of bad news or are pointing out things that maybe we already know but weren't talking about. Yeah, we're not a big fan of that. Yeah, especially when, you know, we all know this, but we don't want to talk about it or, no, we don't think that's true, right? We just want to hear uh, the things we already believe. We want to have that repeated to us and, yeah, just kind of challenging. And usually we're okay if somebody's going to, you know, call out someone else. But when they're calling us out for the things that we've always been doing, we're not going to stand for that. And, again, I'm not going to get into all my personal stuff today. I've already done that plenty. Uh, but yeah, over the last few years, especially, uh, I've felt the need to speak prophetically, and I have seen that there's a cost to that. Did it make you want to hide in the walls with a family of rats? A little bit, okay. except you know, it's I still have to get paid, and so that's, mm, you know, that's it's, tough. when it's my job that makes. Yeah, I think that's an essential thing that if churches don't have people that are willing to really speak out and acknowledge. Uh, what's gone wrong, and and really see what's happening, then they're they're not going to be healthy. And Jesus and, and so many of the prophets, they knew this. Uh, they knew there was a cost to it. Right? I mean, I think that's why Jesus knew where his life was going to go is going to go to the cross because he was being prophetic. Right? That's one of the most common ways that people talk about him in the Gospels is as a prophet. Uh, and so he's very much in that tradition, and so he's not welcome in certain places. You know, we think of Jesus sometimes as, well, he only just, he just spoke love and people didn't want to hear that. Well, that's partly true, but he was also, the way he was talking about love was very challenging to those that were in power. And so it's, it's a necessary role for the church and it's people that, again, care about the church. If you're just trying to tear it down, you're not being prophetic. But as much as that voice is needed, it is usually not welcome. And so there's going to be particular people that, that really really will reject any sort of prophetic voice or voices like Mirabelle who are trying to, you know, tell the truth about what's going on and expose some of those cracks in the house. And so in the movie, the character who does that the most is Abuela. Right? This is her Mirabelle's grandma. She's the matriarch of the family. She's the one that first received the, the miracle and and kind of built all of this but she's uh as you go through the movie it seems like a lot of times she's the problem so is abuela the villain what what do you think just kind of from that approach is that the right word for her um no (laughs) she's not the villain because she built the whole structure that they're in right i mean the gift was received by her and we find out it was received by her because of the things she went through Mm -hmm. and um you know she she built this home she built this community she raised these kids um who who have turned out to love each other and do really wonderful things for the community and there is definitely some trauma here and there's some a lot of baggage in this family and a lot of things that aren't being talked about but at the end of the day we have someone who who she herself experienced incredible trauma and the way that she has continued to grow through that is really um really incredible and and you can see how much the family 
values her and needs her even though it is frustrating the way that she treats some of them and the way that she values certain things. Um, I definitely don't think of Abuela as the victim. She's just another Mm. member of the family who's Mm -hmm. growing through a lot of trauma. Yeah. And, you know, she's kind of harshest on Mirabelle, I think. And part of that is, you know, she's, as I kind of mentioned earlier, the, you, you want people that can do things for the family, for the community, for the church. And, 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 it seems like in her mind, Mirabelle isn't doing that as much, right? She's kind of blind to what Mirabelle has to offer. I don't know. I think that there's so much loss that she goes through and she goes through that loss alone and in such a traumatic way. I mean, you know, we were talking about before we started recording, like how hard it is to parent for a couple weeks by yourself when your partner is out of town. She parented three infants her entire life by herself, that's extremely difficult and a lot of trauma. And so I think that maybe people watching the movie uh, have come down a little hard on Abuela. Yeah, I mean, it's it's coming from trauma. It's coming from loss. Yeah, she does have unfair expectations, especially like of Isabella. Uh, she's ignoring some of the pain that, that should seem obvious. But you know, it's there's this tragedy in her life, right? Her husband was taken from her when she had three newborns and then she receives this miracle that came from that that tragedy and so it you know for me it, it invites sympathy right that yes it doesn't excuse the way that she treats some of her family members but you understand it and when you recognize that she has trauma that's it's affecting everything yeah, there should be some grace for her, I think. I would also argue that maybe she's not ignoring the pain, um, but the way that she has had to deal with pain in her own life has been very different. So I don't think it's actually that she is ignoring it. I think she knows Isabella doesn't really want to do this. I think she knows too much is being put on Luisa. I, th- I think Abuela is actually just as aware of it as Mirabella is. Um, but the thing is that in her own life, dealing with that trauma and getting down on her feelings and working through things, it was not an option. She needed to survive with her three children. And so I feel like a lot of what we see is that she has now taken on the responsibility for this entire community's survival. And she sees her family as a really integral part of that. And so in her mind, like they can't take time to stop and deal with the pain they need to keep going. They need to ensure the survival of this entire community. Like we talk about Luisa taking on all this pressure, but I would argue that Abuela is probably a two as well. Um, She has put the pressure on herself to care for this entire community and to help them and this gift that she's gotten to make it go as far as humanly possible. And you know, the, the way that she had to deal with her own pain and trauma it wasn't an option. It was just survival. And I think that, that what we see throughout the movie is that they're not in survival mode anymore. Right. She still acts like she's, it. But, but she still feels like okay. she is. And that's yeah. something we see, you know, with, with people who've gone through a lot of trauma and PTSD is feeling like they never feel like they're safe. Even in situations where they are, they can't see that they're safe anymore. And I think that's the thing we see with Abuela is that even though the family's safe and the community is strong and these people are able to care for themselves and these kids are grown, she can't really see that. It's not that she doesn't see the pain, but she doesn't see that they're safe. Um, and so I think that what we see is her moving from this place of, you know, um, 
of of post-traumatic stress into post-traumatic growth and that she is able to take the lessons from that trauma and actually have um, a better experience with her family moving forward. But that takes a really long time uh, and it takes Mirabelle uh, to, to point that out to her and, and make her realize that like everything is okay. Even if they all lose their gifts, like they are okay now. But I think once someone has been in survival mode, it's really hard to get out of that. And I think with church members who seem really stubborn and defiant and difficult, it's important to remember that too, that they may be in survival mode. For them, this group may be in survival mode. And to realize like, no, we're safe enough to change things. We're safe enough to question things might feel really difficult uh, if they actually don't feel safe enough to do that. And I think that's actually what's going on with Abuela. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, mean, I think that's perfect, right? And just, again, to recognize with church people, the problematic church people are not evil. They're not just trying to ignore people or hurt people or or do all these things. It's they're they're oper- you know, they know what they know and everybody has their hurts and a lot of times you're operating out of those. You know, hopefully people can learn to recognize what their trauma is or what their hurts are and see how maybe they're accidentally passing those things on, but again to to have some grace for those people that you know, sometimes you wish would just, you know, stop to recognize, yeah, they're, they're part of this too. And there are reasons why they act the way that they do. It explains, it doesn't always excuse it, but to understand and give people that, that grace like she needs. And so going back to, to the movie, what happens next after, you know, Mirabelle has talked with everyone and kind of confronted some people, the house falls down, right? It is fully, deconstructed, I guess you could say, really demolished. But that's not the end of the movie, right? So everybody's lost their gifts. There's no more house. And yet this community that, as you mentioned, is is actually thriving and maybe doesn't need their gifts as much as Abuela thinks, or maybe a lot of the family thinks. They come and they help rebuild the house. They reconstruct the house and so I think that's a helpful reminder of, you know, what is the goal of deconstruction? Well, it's it's reconstruction, right? Deconstruction is the middle phase. You have your construction, deconstruction, and then finally reconstruction. If you don't get to that final phase, then you're missing the whole point. It's to rebuild a stronger church, to rebuild a stronger faith. And so that's that's our goal as well. I want to read a little bit from a book called When Everything's on Fire, which is a pretty good title for a book that came out uh, last year, is by Brian Zond. And uh, he also uses this metaphor of a theological house, right, of what we build up in our beliefs and, and what happens to it. He says, my theological house, by which I mean theology, is how I think and speak about the God revealed in Christ. My theological house is a palace in my mind for Christ the King. The theological house is important, but only because it's the palace of the king, and we must never forget that the king and the palace are not synonymous. In other words, the center of Christian faith is not theology, but Christ. It's not to say our theological house is unimportant or unnecessary. Uh, It's actually inevitable. Any attempt to speak or think about God revealed in Christ is to engage in theological construction. And there's one of our words. We all have a theological house, some of it we inherit, some of it we construct ourselves. And so then he goes on to say, you know, the the process of kind of building his theology, he was, you know, unaware he's doing that, but it's just, these are things I know about God, and those may be true or not. But then he talks about 
later he started to see the inadequacy of his theological house, right? It was too small. Um, some were, you know, decorated or designed not very well. It was informed by things that had nothing to do with Jesus. And it got to the point where, you know, he didn't want to invite people into his theological house, so to speak, right? He says, I wasn't ashamed of Jesus, but the theological house I had built around Jesus had become an embarrassment. And so then he talks about going on a, a theological renovation. I didn't want to demolish my faith. I wanted to restore it. And so he talks about the process of, again, remodeling the house while he's living in it. It's a messy and disruptive thing. Uh, but he says it was worth it. And, you know, the way to think about this house is not, you know, just one room. It's, it's a mansion with lots of rooms. And so he says there are some rooms in that theological house, right, his belief system, that basically were left untouched. Some were slightly remodeled, and some had to be torn down. Uh, and so it, it was a lot of sacrifice. It was a lot of work. It was uncomfortable. He says, I was willing to sacrifice my theology for my Lord. So the point of all that is, you know, these belief systems that we build up, and every church kind of has, you know, as a whole, the way it understands things, and, and every individual member is going to understand things and build that theological house somehow. Are we willing to evaluate it, to step back and say, you know what, this, this is out of date, or this actually was never a, a good choice in the beginning? But that, again, the goal is not just tear it all down, Right? We, we need a place to live. If we're going to have a faith, it's just inevitable that we will build up something around Jesus uh, to, to explain what we believe and how we believe and, and the ways that, that that works out. It's not a bad thing to build this up. It's, it's something we all do, but can we do it well? Can we evaluate those things? Can we admit we can't just paper over the cracks in the wall anymore? So, you know, as we're wrapping up this discussion... What hope do you have for a rebuilt kind of church? What are some of the things that you would hope that we would hang on to or that we would emphasize more as, as we're rebuilding and going through this, this process of, of reconstruction? I think there's definitely a lot of hope in rebuilding the church. I think there are so many elements of Christianity and of church that are worth holding on to. Um, if we can get some of the unhelpful stuff out of the way. And so um, for me, I think, you know, that's love. It's inclusion. Uh, it's the stuff that Jesus did. Um, you know, Jesus was all about including people who didn't get to be included before. Um, and he didn't necessarily say, like, it was bad what happened before, but he said, now we need to focus on including more people. That's that's really the, um, the overarching theme of a lot of Jesus's work. And we see that in the movie too, right? That... Um, Abuela, she's like, this This miracle was for me. This miracle was for our family. And then when it's destroyed, the second time around, the miracle's for everybody. Everyone gets to build the house together. Everyone in that city gets to be part of that miracle. And I think that's really the news of Jesus, too, is that this miracle is not just for a certain family. It's not just for a certain part of God's people. It's for everyone. And, and that radical kind of inclusion, I think that is worth holding on to. Um, I think that the part of church that is about community and service is really worth holding on to. And that's something that a lot of churches have done well. Um, and something where we've also missed the mark on who are we serving, who is involved in that community. So again, there's, there's some stuff we need to pull apart. There's some stuff that needs to be refurbished when it comes to inclusion and service. Um, but I think that those things are really worth holding on to. Um, 
And I think this really beautiful aspect of the church as a parent is having a lot of people in your kids' lives who love them. You know, I think about um, my daughter and her, the the Bible class teachers and the grownups in the church who give her a candy on Sunday morning and, you know, the, the wide variety of people who are part of her life and are pouring into her and are getting to know her and witness her. And I think that that is a really beautiful part of church that we often don't get in other communities in our life is this really intergenerational pouring in to, to us, but also to our children. So I think those things are really worth holding on to. And I think there's a lot of stuff we need to cut through and dissolve to get to them. Yeah. What is the most important and make that make the most important thing, the most important thing and build everything else around that. And yeah, I appreciate what you said about the intergenerational side of it. I mean, I've definitely had times where I, my feeling has been like, I'm just going to take the, you know, 20 and 30 somethings that think just like I do, and we'll go make our own church. Well, you know, that that's missing a, a central part of actually what, what it is. Yeah, right? who would give our kids caramels on Sunday morning and make a big mess true. in the pew, and, you know? And teach those Bible classes, because I don't want to... I have no interest more. in doing that, no. <laughs> <laughs> so as I think about, you know, what a reconstructed church looks like, yeah, there are so many things that it could be totally different. You know, even the building itself, as we're thinking about that, right? Is that necessary? And the, you can find all sorts of, of churches today that are trying very different approaches to a lot of these, you know, the the outside stuff, right? The things that are not the main thing. But as I think about the future of the church and this idea of being willing to keep re- restoring and evaluating what's working and what's not and asking questions Really, my hope is that the church would always do that. Not that, okay, our, my, now finally my generation is going to rebuild the church and we're going to get it right. right? That's, every generation has thought that. Right? Our, our, the movement we're part of is called a restoration movement. And I think for a lot of people, the assumption is, well, we restored the church back then, so let's just keep it like that. But restoration is an ongoing process. It, it always will be. And so being always willing to admit that, okay, there might be another way to do this. And maybe the things that I thought were the most important maybe aren't the most important. You know, I, one of my hopes is that when I'm one of those old people is that I'm not, you know, I'm willing to listen to others who have other perspectives and not just be stuck in, in my ways because I figured it out after my, my long life. So that's, that's one of my hopes for the future of the church. So uh, as we kind of transition to the end of our show today, we want to end with our pop culture consolations and desolations. This is a version of the spiritual practice from Ignatius of Loyola, where we ask, you know, where have we seen something giving life this week or today, and what has been um, not giving life? But we're going to just take this very serious spiritual practice and use it to talk about pop culture. So uh, what's something that you've been watching or reading or or doing uh, that has given you life? And is there anything that maybe has not been life-giving? Yeah, so one of the things that's been uh, really giving me life lately is actually this comedian um, named Michael Palisak. So I followed him for a long time, but he's gotten uh, a little more popular lately. Uh, he has a half-hour special on dry bar comedy that's really good. Um, he also has been featured on some late shows lately and things like that. Um, but I follow him on Instagram. He posts a lot of his uh, his stand-up and his content on there. 
and he's just really funny and creative. Um, and he actually, he, so he grew up in the church. He's Catholic. His mom was Irish Catholic. He's married to someone who grew up in a different religion. And so a lot of his, uh, a lot of his material kind of picks on the things that are, uh, that are pretty funny in the church and pretty ironic if we actually think about them and the ways that different religions overlap. And I, I just really enjoy him and his material in general. So uh, in general, Michael Palisak, he's been very, very life-giving lately. Uh, definitely laugh-giving, so. All right. Hey, laughs are, laughs are great. I, uh, this week, uh, or actually the last few weeks, you know, I, I'd spent a lot of time looking for new music and, and finding, you know, really interesting things. But the album I keep going back to is the new album by Harry Styles, Harry's House, which uh, Kaylee's kind of laughing at, which, yeah, I know it's it's uh, not what you might expect, but I, I don't know. I just uh, really drawn to it and he's just got so much charisma. I've never been like a, you know, One Direction or Harry Styles fan before. That seems like a lie. There's a poster in his bedroom. Don't believe him. No, don't listen to her. I've got all these cool indie rock things in my office. He's right lying. Now. It's all One Direction. There's some in sync up here, but that's just because he's old. You know, like the lyrics of it aren't, there's nothing like really insightful for the most part. Right. But it's just, again, it's just a joy to listen to. It's summertime. So, you know, you want a fun listen I'm sure most everybody else is already listening to it, but that's uh, Harry's House by Harry Styles. And I guess if I had a, a desolation, it would be having to admit that, I guess, on this podcast. So uh, anything that you want to mention as far as, you know, not as life-giving when it comes to pop culture stuff? Um, the most actively life-sucking thing that's been going on is the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Uh, has just been a nightmare. Um Here's the thing. There's nothing interesting to say about it. Uh, every hot take on the internet are equally terrible. Uh, at the end of the day, these are two pretty toxic people who had substance abuse issues and toxic behaviors who were in a toxic relationship. And that's kind of what it is. And sometimes people just bring out the worst in us. And it seems like two people who had some bad stuff to be brought out. Um, and I think it's probably just best for everyone that their relationship is over. But now it didn't get to be over. It got to overwhelm my Instagram feed for a month. And uh, I guess it's life giving that it's over now. But now it's all the like, I feel like suddenly there's this swath of articles that's like, oh, no, all the stuff I said about it online, on, online during the trial, I take it all back. I have a different view now and I've thought of something different. And I just I just want to be done talking about and it. And just even the idea that like that's pop culture, like kind of is because they're celebrities and it's in the news. But yeah, so you're a six, right? So you're always going to find things that are wrong. I have more. Look, if other people don't have a desolation, I could give them some note cards. Well, and I mean, what's the point of being like a pop culture kind of person if you don't have things you're going to be critical of and complain about? I think that's fun. But as fun as this is and, and as serious as some of these things are, I do want to get really serious for just a moment. You know, this has been a challenging time. And as we're all going through our challenges, we need to find things that can bring us out, that can give us hope, like this podcast. And so if you're listening today, I know you know somebody who needs hope. Hope for this life right here today. How else are you going to find it if you don't tell them? If you don't subscribe and give us five stars and review us, how are they going to find the hope for tomorrow? So please, share this podcast with a friend while there's still time. 
Well, thanks again for joining us today. Our theme song is Be Thou My Vision from the 8-Bit Hymnal by Mr. Tyler Larson. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Pop Culture Pastor. This podcast is edited and produced by me. You're now dismissed. Go in peace. <laughs>